So there was a, a handout. I think you guys all got it. Um, I have a little dilemma, though. So uh, it was almost two years the last time I stood up here. I looked in my records, and I think March 1st of 2020 was the last time I taught this class. That's a long time. I was talking to Mrs. White last week, and I told her, I said, you know, if I was sitting in your seat and, and somebody asked me, you know, what was in Sunday school two years ago, I would hardly remember what the topic is, let alone the details of it. So then I, that was my dilemma. So now what do I do? Do I go over, start over? <laughs> well, I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to recover everything. But what I thought I'd do is try to give a quick review. So today is review only. Basically, we're going to cover... Uh, I'm going to try to cover most of what we covered before in one day, which is going to be really hard for me. We may not get through it all. That's okay. And then next week, if I don't get through review today, I'll finish review, and then we'll start new stuff next week. So I'm going to try to not go a 1,000 miles an hour, but still try to cover what we covered before, try to jog your memory, remember where we were and what we were doing. So kind of my goal for this was, uh, when I started it, what I wanted to do was give you some basic principles of hermeneutics. And then as we go along, take some time to go through some passages in detail, which we did once, and that was the, the story of the widow's mite. We went through that in detail. We, what, what I did, or tried to do anyway, was I tried to take the principles we had been learning and apply it to a passage so you can see how it works out. Um, I want to do that more as we go. So when we get to going through more passages in detail, I want you to remember the basics of what we covered before, so that's why I really want to go through review. So you kind of remember, here's the principles I gave you. Now let's apply them to passages and see uh, what we learn by applying these principles to passages as we go. Um, I want, so I, the story of the widow's mite was a really good one because so many people get it wrong. Um, but I want to go through some more complicated ones. Um, some prophecy, maybe parts of Revelation. And um, I want you to see how these principles applied to these passages that are some more difficult to understand really make it quite easy. It's not as hard as a lot of people want to make it out to be. Okay, so why are we here? Second uh, Timothy 2.15. Does anybody know it? Can anybody tell me off the top of their head? Lisa, what is it? You have to be ashamed. Accurate handling the word of truth, right? If you've ever been in Awana or done anything with Awana, you know this verse, right? But it's important. And I learned it as a kid in King James. So I, when it comes out, it comes out King James. <laughs> Studies show thyself approved unto God, a workman that need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And that phrase there, rightly dividing the word of truth, is kind of an idiom. And it's one of the things that we talk about later. Um, and it means... Um, literally means to cut it straight. Or that's how you would take the Greek idiom and make it an uh, English idiom would be cut it straight. We use that. If somebody said cut it straight to you, you'd know what that meant. Well, that's what this meant, means in the Greek. Um, but it means that you have to be careful in Bible study, right? You have to get all the pieces right so that when you put the puzzle together, everything fits. If you don't cut it straight, it's not going to fit together. Okay. So we remember that every verse has a meaning. All, all these passages have a meaning that God intended in that passage. And we're, our goal in Bible study is to determine that meaning. What does it mean? And hermeneutics is the science of Bible t interpretation. It's the term we use to describe um, the laws of determining what Scripture means. It's careful Bible interpretation. It's the, the task of hermeneutics is to discover the meaning of the text in its proper setting, to draw meaning from Scripture. Why? Because getting it right is extremely important, right? I mean, what good does it do to say that the Bible is God's final and authoritative word, but not know what it means? Our goal is to learn or to understand what God has for us in his word. And then we take these principles and use that to apply it to Scripture to understand what God is teaching us. Okay? The fact remains, every jot and tittle of Scripture carries the intended meaning of the author. And the task of the Bible student is to discern what that meaning is. Um, so I give you some errors to avoid here. I won't spend much time on that. 
errors to avoid are proof texting. People do this a lot. They take verses out of context. You guys are pretty good. I'm sure you've heard and seen that so many times. You can, by now, if somebody does it, you can pick it out right away. If somebody takes a verse out of context, that was the problem with the widow's might, right? People took that passage out of context. If you look at the context as a whole, the meaning of it becomes really clear. But you need the context, otherwise those few verses don't have the same meaning they do with the context around them. Superficial Bible study. People do this all the time. They take their Bible. They take their Bible, they flip to a passage, and they, this is what God is telling me today. And they read one verse, you know, and they say, this is it, right? You can't do that either. Well, that takes it out of context. And you really need to learn and study, okay? 1 Timothy, or 1 Thessalonians 5.21 says, Examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. The first phrase there, examine everything carefully. Not flippantly, not out of context. Examine everything carefully. Think about what people are telling you, what people are teaching you. Think about what you read in Scripture. Examine it carefully. Okay? And then some people, the third error here is allegorizing everything. I don't know how many times I've seen people do this. Especially preachers. And some people think this is great preaching. People take a story out of the Bible that's just a literal story, and they make everything in the story symbolic of something else. And they turn it into an allegory. One that I remember... Just because it struck me, I was, I was at a church. I was going to preach in the evening. I showed up in the morning to meet the people of the church before I was supposed to preach in the afternoon. And um, there was a guest preacher there. And he went to the Road to Emmaus story. And if you remember that story, two men are walk, walking along the road discussing things that have just recently happened with Jesus' crucifixion, his burial, his resurrection. And they were talking about that on the way. And Guy comes along and starts talking with them about it. Didn't take them, they didn't realize that it was Jesus they were talking to, and they find out at the end, right? You guys remember the story. Well, the guy, the preacher I was listening to, he made that into an allegory. And he said, um, he said, the road was our Christian life, and we're all walking down the road like we walk through our Christian life. And he said, because there were two men on the road, that means God is telling you you're supposed to have fellowship with each other because there's two men on this road. Right? And then he said, uh, the two men meet Jesus on the road because we meet Jesus somewhere in our life as we're going down the road. Um, he said, then Jesus comes alongside of us and teaches us in our life. Well, okay, all these things are true, right? None of this stuff the guy was trying to tell us is true. It's true we're supposed to have fellowship with each other. It's true we all kind of meet Jesus. We learn and understand more about Jesus as we go. These are all true things, but none of this is in the story. None of this is in the road to Emmaus. Not a single one of it. Here's the interesting thing, and the reason I bring this up is because I found this ironic. It didn't, as the guy was going through it. He gets to the part where it says, when Jesus taught them, and, he, and the, it's Luke 24, 27, says, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. <clears throat> and the idea is here that Jesus started at the beginning, went through the scriptures in order and taught these two men the things that were happening about him that were written in the scriptures. That's the way it's supposed to be done. And here this guy was telling me these things, and he's doing it exactly the opposite. He's just taking things out of context. He's making it an allegory. And it's not there. Um, but in that passage, in that verse, Luke 24:27, says, beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained, that word there for explained is hermeneuo. It's where we get our word hermeneutic. It's the idea that you'll take all of Scripture and learn from it. Not taking things out of context, not allegorizing stuff, not superficially, but looking at it in detail and taking it as a whole. Okay? So then um, I'm going to give you five principles of hermeneutics which we covered this all before, so this is review, but it's, it's good stuff. So um, the first principle of hermeneutics. Here, do you guys have uh, the Trin Trinity hymnal with Anya? There's a Trini Trinity hymnal there. If you guys have a Trinity hymnal, in the back, someday maybe we should go over this. So this would be good. The London Baptist Confession of Faith. 
We don't turn to this very often in the back of the hymnal. And it's on 671. Page 671. Chapter 1. This confession, this chapter, chapter 1 is just fantastic. You get a chance. Read through chapter 1 of the confession. It's really good. Um, But I want to draw your attention to Article 9. Cliff Cliff Middleton, do you have that? Can you read that for us? The infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is Scripture itself. Scripture interprets Scripture. The Reformers called this analogia scriptura, or the analogy of Scripture. It means that we take Scripture as a whole. Remember that Scripture will never contradict itself. Okay? There are no paradoxes in Scripture. If you read one Bible passage and it seems to contradict another one, then you are misinterpreting at least one of those passages, if not both. I've heard this at least a dozen times where people say they read one thing in Scripture and it seems to contradict another, and the pastor will say, oh, it's a paradox. It's something we can't understand. Or it's a mystery, and they want to throw it in the mystery box. And every time they come to something they can't, they can't explain, they put it in the mystery box. Some guys have a really big mystery box. Lots of stuff goes in it. Okay. There are things in Scripture that are beyond our comprehension, things that are hard to understand, but that does not mean they are contradictory. Okay. There can't be contradictions in Scripture. The reason is, is because if there was, you wouldn't know what to believe. right? If one verse says A and the other verse says not A, which one are you going to believe? They can't both say the same. They can't say one thing and something say the opposite in the Scripture. You would have no idea which one to believe. Right? Scripture is God's truth. Okay? And being truth, it cannot be contradictory. The best way to interpret Scripture, then, is with Scripture itself. If you're reading something and you don't understand it, look in other places in Scripture that talk about the same thing. If something doesn't appear right in one place, look in another place that talks about the same thing. Okay? This obscure passage in Scripture must be understood in light of clear ones. Never build a doctrine on a single unclear text. So the Bible is God's word and is always consistent with itself. Look what the Bible as a whole has to say about what you're studying. Use all the scriptures. Okay, so the first way, the first, the other next note in here I have is consider the context, which is what we already talked about. So if there's something in Scripture you're not understanding, the best thing to do, first thing I always do is look at the context. I can't tell you how many times we're going through Deuteronomy, and we're going through it in order. But even though the previous week we studied all the verses that come before the verse we're, verses we're studying this week, as soon as Pastor Walden says, turn to Deuteronomy, whatever it is, the first thing I always do is backing up a few verses, trying to remind myself what we covered last week to get the context of what we're going to study this week. He does it anyway, but I always read it first. <laughs> because it's, by, it's habit. That's what I do. If, if somebody... If we're going to study something, the first thing I do is look, what came before it, what came after it, immediately. And then even better is if you have time, look, what's in the chapter before, what's in the chapter after, and try to get a context of what's going on. Pastor Walden does a really good job of, pretty much every week he does that. He reminds you of what we covered the last week, and he goes over it. But it's a good idea to read it. And if somebody tells you to turn to some verse, that's what I usually do. Is I get to the verse and I, they say turn to chapter 15, or verse 15. I turn to chapter verse 11 or 10, and quick scan through it. And then by the time the person is reading it, hopefully I've gotten the context and I understand where they're at. Um, so considering the context, here's some questions you can ask yourself: What came immediately before the passage? What came immediately after the passage? Those are the easy ones. What we tend to forget to do is to look. What happened in the chapter before or what happened in the chapter after? Or even better yet, what's the whole the book as a whole? What's the book as a whole mean? As we go through Deuteronomy, remind yourself, what's the book as a whole? 
What's, what's the book of Deuteronomy intended for? What was Moses doing when he wrote the book of Deuteronomy? Why did he write it? Those are questions to remind yourself as we're going through it to help you understand what's happening here, right? So right now we're getting details about um, you shall have no other gods before me, right? We're doing that in detail. But then you've got to remember, well, that's part of the first commandment, right? And then that first commandment is part of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were given to the Israelites from the mount. Well, why is it? But we're going over it again. Why, why, is, why is Moses going over it again? It's Deuteronomy. That's the second giving of the law. He's doing it over again. Why, did, why does he have to do that? What happened? All those are things to think about as we're going through that that help you get context and help you understand what's going on. Um, and, and not only that, but where does the book fall in the whole of redemptive history, right? So not only, okay, so why is Moses giving the law again? Why was the law given the first time? What's the point of that, right? The law is a tutor that points you to Christ. That's easy to forget as we're going through details about one law, right, in Deuteronomy. Don't forget. What's the law for? The law shows you your sin and your need for a Savior. The law is the tutor that leads you to Christ, right? All these things to remember as, as we're going through and studying Scripture, okay? Remember that rightly dividing the word of truth, it's hard work, right? And if you don't cut all the pieces straight, the whole thing isn't going to fit together. In Bible study, be diligent. Look at the whole. And all the pieces will fit together. So that's Analogia Scriptura, the first principle. The second principle is the literal principle. Literal interpretation. It means we take Scripture understood in its normal sense, including figures of speech like uh, parables, hyperboles, similes, metaphors, symbolisms, idioms. Okay, Scripture is even facetious at times. When I was younger, I didn't get it. Like, I'd read the passage from Paul where he was being facetious, and it just would confuse me all the time. <laughs> now, as I've learned more, I can I see it. You know, I you, and I'm sure you guys, when you read that, you see when Paul is being facetious. But if you're not looking for it, or if you're not used to it, you go, "What? What's he? What's he talking about now? This is backwards of what he should be saying." Well, he's being facetious. Um, in years past, theologians used the term "usus loquendi," meaning usage in speaking, meaning that the words of Scripture are interpreted the same way words are understood. In ordinary speech. And if you think about this, this makes sense, right? Okay, so somebody took Greek or Hebrew, right? They took the Greek and Hebrew and they were going to translate it into English. Well, how did they know what to translate the Greek words into, into English words? How did they know what to do, right? They're taking old Greek and they're having to match up words in modern English. And what the words that they're using are words we use in everyday speech. That's why it gets updated occasionally and new translations come out, because language changes, right? So they took Greek and they turned it into English, but they used the terms we would use in everyday language for the most part. Now, some prophetic passages, they were more literal, because a lot of those things, there is no English equivalent. So they did their best to translate it as literally as they could in prophetic language. But we'll get to that later on. That's one of the things we're going to go over later. Um, but most of the time we read right over the figurative language of Scripture and never even realize it's there because we use it in everyday speech. We're so used to it. Um, God has communicated his word to us with ordinary language and it was meant to be understood. I was thinking about um, phrases we use and terminology we use all the time that doesn't make any sense if you take it literally. And it's funny how a lot of it revolves around farming. Maybe because that's <laughs> it was farming was a was a major occupation a hundred years ago. It's not so much now, but you know um, you might make hay while the sun shines or you might hit the hay or live high on the hog, right? Or be stuck with the pork. A lot of it gets for some reason, it revolves around farming. Maybe that's, that's because that was the lifestyle years and years ago. 
Um, but a lot of idioms and stuff, a lot of expressions we use that are like that, you may, you may use those in everyday speech and not even realize you're doing it. And those things that show up in Scripture. Um, and sometimes they show up in Scripture and they were translated into an English equivalent and you read right over it. And sometimes it's not and it's more literally translated and you read it and you don't understand what it means. Um, we'll get to that more often. Um, but the point here I'm trying to make is the literal principle is that not everything in Scripture is symbolic. Not everything's an allegory. There are didactic statements. There are stories that are historical that really happened, that this is the way it really was. There's not some symbolic meaning trying to hidden that you have to unbury. Okay? Remember where there is symbolism in Scripture? It can be hard to under interpret, but it's never beyond understanding. And it's really evident in the places it's used. Remember, even the figurative and symbolic language of Scripture conveys clear, literal truth. Another thing to remember is as you come, get to symbols, especially ones you don't understand, I'm thinking of Matthew, and like the sky roll, being rolled back as a scroll. The, you know, the, the sky will be dark, and the stars will fall from the sky. Those, that language may not make much sense to you, but if you think about it, or if you look it up, those symbols show up multiple places in the Old Testament. The sky being rolled back as a scroll, that's not the first, Matthew isn't the first place that shows up in Scripture. In fact, I think there's three other places in Scripture we could go to where that exact phrase is used in the Old Testament. Um, so the biggest key to understanding prophetic language is if you don't understand where it's being used in one place of Scripture, look up where it's being used in other places of Scripture. A lot of times those phrases in the Old Testament were clearly explained exactly what it means. And all you have to do is go look. So, um, and this again is the synthesis principle, the analogia scriptura. Scripture interprets scripture. Okay. And then the next principle, the grammatical principle. Remembering when studying the New Testament that it was written in Greek and the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. The original Greek and Hebrew autographs are the inspired word of God. Okay. Those are the ones that are flawless, without error, inerrant. What you're reading in your Bible, what you're holding in your hand is a translation. It was translated into English. Okay? Our translations are good, but not perfect like the original autographs are. Okay? Sometimes understanding a passage is made clear by looking at the original language in which it was written. Many times original Greek and, the original Greek and Hebrew word can be translated into two or more English words. Sometimes just looking it up and seeing what other words, English words, can that Greek word be translated into will give you a lot of understanding of, of what's going on in the passage. Sometimes different Greek or Hebrew words are translated in the same English word. That's when it gets tricky. Knowing what the word meant in the original language will help you interpret the passage. Turn to John 21 here. I'm going to remind you of this because this is important. I've shortened this. John 21, 15. We went through it in detail a long time ago. John 21, 15. Remember the context here. Um, this is after the resurrection. Jesus appears to the disciples. They have breakfast. And then Jesus goes and talks to Peter. And verse 15 says, When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Okay, the, word, the first word there for love in the question that Jesus asked Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And the word there for love, later in the verse where Peter's answer, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you, the two words there for love are translated from different Greek words. They are not the same. There's some meaning that was lost there when they translated those words. But that was the best you could do. That's the best English equivalent we have. We, don't, we only have one word for love, where in the Greek there was three. Well, sometimes understanding which word for love they're using there is helpful in understanding. So Simon, son of John, Jesus' question, do you love me, is agapio love. And then he said to him, Peter answers, yes, Lord, you know that I love phileo you. 
he didn't answer using the exact same words that Jesus had. Well, what does that mean? Well, that adds some meaning to the passage, doesn't it? Well, what does it mean? Well, you'll have to look it up later. I'm not going to go over it now. Um, but that gains some understanding into what's going on here, knowing that those words that are translated in the same English word were translated from different Greek words. And those Greek words have different meanings. But some of that gets lost and it gets translated into English. And so you don't need to know Greek or Hebrew to use this principle or to understand this. Um, the way I did it when I looked this up is um, I have a Bible with the Strong's numbers. So you guys know what Strong's numbers are? There's a Strong's concordance for you younger guys. There's a strong concordance. It has every word in the Bible in it. And every word has a number. And it, they numbered it. But it's Greek. So each Greek individual Greek word has a number. And it's called the Strong's number. So when I looked this up, next to the, each word, there's a number. It's really hard to read because you have a word, a number, a word, a number, a word, a number. And next to the words for love, there's a number. Well, I just looked at the one. And it's a different Greek, it's a different Strong's number than the word for love for the other one has. And I knew they were different. And then if you have a Strong's concordance or a Bible app, you can look up what the word is, what the original Greek word is. And that helps you. So you don't need to know Greek or Hebrew to use this. Sometimes there's an interlinear, uh, sorry, there's an interlinear translation where it'll show the English words and right above it it'll show the Greek words. This is a Greek word and then what's the English word? Greek word, English word, Greek word, and they're two, two lines. And so you could see this Greek word is different than this Greek word even though it was translated in the same English word. Um, so you can also look up words in a Bible dictionary, a commentary, commentary, or even an English dictionary. Now here's an interesting point. Some people will uh, look down on people who use an English, a regular old English dictionary, like Merriam-Webster, to look up words that are in Scripture, that are English. And they say, oh, you, you shouldn't do that. But you've got to remember here, so guys had to translate this. So it was Greek and Hebrew, and they translated it in English. How did the guys who were translating it from Greek know what English word to use? Well, they knew it because there's a definition for those English words, and those definitions are in a regular old English dictionary, Right? So if there's a word there you're not understanding, it can be helpful to look it up into a regular English dictionary. You don't have to have a Bible dictionary. But a lot of times a Bible dictionary is better because it'll give you the definition of the Greek word. That's a slightly different definition than what the English word might be. But you can still use it. Um, commentaries often will tell you what words mean. Um, those are really helpful. I'm always cautious that there's a commentary you're reading and they don't ever say a specific word means. The ones who are paying attention to what the words mean are paying attention to the Greek and Hebrew, the ones that know it and are telling you what it means. Um, it's a way for the layman who doesn't know Greek or Hebrew to understand what's coming going on in Scripture. Another thing I like to do um, for the grammatical principle here is use different translations. The NES is mostly what we use here. Fantastic translation. That's, I think it's the best. That's the one I use. ESV is another really good one that you can look at, and a lot of times they translated it differently. Um, I like the King James for looking up. I know, <laughs> I know Cliff likes to use the King James. And one reason I like the King James is because it was one of the first translations. There are certain doctrines and theologies that pop up later, especially in the early 1900s that influence later translations. And there's things in tra later translations that are translated differently than they are in the King James just because of presuppositions from other theologies that had popped up. One is, the, the biggest one is dispensationalism, and it changed the way translators translated some things. But a lot of times you can look it up in old King James, and as long as you can understand that old King James language, um, they'll translate it differently, and you can see. Um, one of the ones that comes to mind is um, the Antichrist. Um, if you look up in King James, the old King James, that term Antichrist is never plural or never singular. It's always plural. It's Antichrist. It's always Antichrist. 
Antichrist. You look it up in the NIV, newer translations, and they made it singular. The Antichrist. Well, something different. But if you look up in Old King James, that, that phrase is never singular. It's always plural. It's always Antichrist. Antichrists have come. But theology changed, and they translated it differently in newer translations, and they made it the Antichrist. Something to think about as you're going through Scripture. Um, and the NIV is another good one. My kids, um, Mrs. White asked the kids to bring their Bibles to Sunday school. And so we got, I got a stack. <laughs> Which Bible do I give the kid? Which one do I give this one? Because when they're doing their school and stuff, unlike when I was a kid, they get a, they get a Kindle or they get a, one of our old phones and they use a Bible app. And that's what I let them use at home. And it makes it a lot easier. It's kind of like cheating. <laughs> But my kids, they've learned to use a Bible app. Well, they need to bring a Bible to church, so I have a stack. So, I, Well, I, I decide, okay, Danny, you need an NIV. Will and Beth, maybe, uh, I don't know. <laughs> to decide, you get any answer, you get an NIV. The NIV is good for lower reading levels because it was translated into what was intended to be a seventh grade reading level. But to do that, to get the level of the reading level down, they had to paraphrase some things. So remember that when you're reading the NIV. They added extra phrases and words in there to make it more understandable. Most of the time they got it right. <laughs> but there are a few phrases and stuff in there like, nah, maybe wouldn't have put that in there. Um, but just that's something to remember if you look up something in the NIV. And a lot of times, if you just compare one verse in the NAS and a verse in the NIV, you'll see it. You'll see it pop up right away when you're comparing two verses. You'll see, oh, there's extra words in here in the NIV that aren't in the NAS or in the ESV. Okay. Um, so another thing with the, with the grammatical principle to look for, causes and consequences. So the Bible contains a lot of if-then statements. If one thing is true, then another thing is true. Um, as an engineer, I get those really well. I understand those. I see those all the time. Um, but look for, that's something to look for. Um, Galatians 2, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. It's an if-then statement, and it's an argument, right? If one thing, okay, if this first thing was true, if righteousness came through the law, then the consequence would be that Christ died needlessly. Praise God, neither one of those things is true. It's just an argument, if then. Okay. Another helpful reminder is to look for therefores. I don't know why this one is so rememberable. I, I can tell you I heard this dozens of times. Um, I, didn't, I didn't grow up in a good Bible church. I didn't get good Bible teaching. But I went to a camp that did. And I learned a lot there when I would go to this camp, especially I remember in high school years, and I worked there over summers in high school. And uh, we had we had a Bible lesson at 7 a.m. every morning before breakfast. You'd go and sit down, and the director would teach the teach the staff for half an hour every morning. We were going through Hebrews, and I can. I must have heard, that was the first place I heard it, but I heard it a dozen times there. When you see a therefore, you look to see what it's there for. And that is really rememberable. And after I taught this the last time, I can tell you at least, well, geez, three or four times. Somebody's standing up there reading scripture. They get to a therefore, and everybody stops. Right? It's great. Look to see what it's there for. It, it tells you a lot. You run into a therefore, look to see what the therefore is there for. It's a rememberable thing. I don't know that I ever come across the therefore anymore where I don't look to see what it's there for, but it's really helpful. It's a, it's a, it's a good, simple tool, and for some reason it happens to be really remember, memorable. Um, Galatians 3.6, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of the faith who are sons in, of Abraham. So there's a cause and effect, right? The therefore is showing you the cause and effect. Because Abraham believed God, there are those who are sons of the faith. The reason he is the father of those who have faith is because he believed God originally, right? That's what the therefore is telling us. Another thing to look for in Scripture is compare and contrast. Um, look for things like a but in the middle of a sentence or a but at the beginning. 
The but at the beginning is more like a therefore, but, but it's with contrast. They're telling you something's different than something else. 2 Timothy 1.7 um, For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. What the but is telling you is that the spirit of power is opposite of the spirit of timidity, right? God has given us a spirit of power, not timidity. They're opposites. That's what the but in the middle of that sentence is telling us, right? Scripture uses many other terms to relate two ideas, give comparisons, show cause and effects, or facts and consequences. Look for because, so that. Paul likes that phrase, so that. It goes on, so then, or in order that, but now, it's one of my favorites. Tell me something about the way the Old Testament scripture was. But now, in Christ, this is the way it is. Um, another thing to do when you're reading scripture is look for repetition. I like this. This is a neat, kind of an interesting tool. Some people will miss the point of a passage, and simply looking for a word that's repeated over and over again will tell you what the main point is. It's not hard to find. Um, some are really obvious, and some are not. Um, like John, John 21, right? When we looked at love, that short passage there, the word love shows up. I think it's 11 or 12 times in just five verses. That should tell you something, right? Maybe I should look up love and see what it means, or maybe I should look up more about this. The other one that I think of. Um, is John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What's repeated here? The Word. Well, not only is it repeated there, it's not as much in the rest of John's Gospel, but it is repeated in John's Gospel a lot. There's eight or nine times there in chapter 1 he uses the Word. But 34 times in all of the Gospel of John, he uses the Word. The, the Word there, so... If you're reading that, you might go, oh, what does the word mean? And you might look it up. Well, the word there is logos. Some of you might understand that Greek word and know what that means. The logos is what's translated there, the word. But not only is that giving you a key to what's going on in John 1, but that's giving you an idea of what's going on in all of the Gospel of John. The fact that he uses that word, logos, that's translated the word so many times. Now, that's one that's a little trickier to understand what that word, the word, means or what he means by logos. But it's not, not understandable. And if you look at all the places in the Gospel of John where that shows up, you get a really good understanding of what he means by the word. Right? Sorry, it says in my notes, it's 38 times it shows up. I think I said 34. 38 times in the Gospel of John, logos shows up. Okay? Another thing to look for is questions and answers. Again, this shows up in Paul's epistles a lot. Um, but why is the question there? God is trying to get you to think about something, right? The question is there, whether it's rhetorical or not, is to get you to think about what the question is about. Okay. 1 Corinthians 9, there's an entire argument here. Verses 1 through 14. Most of the verses here are just questions. There are very few statements, and I think I looked through the whole thing. There's the four or five statements in the first 14 verses of 1 Corinthians 9. The rest are all questions. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? Do we have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife? Do Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? Who at any time serves a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and will not eat the fruit of it? Who tends a flock and does not milk the flock? I'm just reading this. It's just question after question after question. Right? He's, making, he's, he's drawing your attention to something because this is an important argument he's trying to make. So he's asking you questions to get you to think about this. Right? And the, what's the point? The point is, is that a worker deserves his wages. So one of the statements in here, it says, for in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while it's threshing. And it says, God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? I love this. It says, yes, for our sake it was written. Okay? Not only now are we learning something about a worker deserving his wages, now Paul is telling something us about the Old Testament. Was this not written for our sake? 
Yes, it was written for our sake. Here again we have analogia scriptura. Scripture interprets scripture. God gave us the Old Testament for our purposes, for our sake, and the New Testament. All of scripture as a whole is useful for teaching, for correction, for reproof, and we'll get to that later on. But that's a neat thing to see in there, that in the midst of these questions, Paul says, this law of the Old Testament was given for your sake. And then he gives the law, the, the rule, you should not muzzle an ox while it's threshing. Okay. How am I doing here? I missed a page. Okay, now the next principle we get to is the historical principle. Okay, so one way to gain insight and understanding of a passage is to have a grasp of the cultural, geographical, and political setting in which the passage was written. If one understands the historical setting, the passage and the proper, the practical application of it will often become clear. So some questions to ask yourself while you're reading scripture. Who wrote the book? Right? Deuteronomy. Who wrote the book? Moses. Who was the book written to? Israel. Right? Before they were in the land of Israel. Right? What were the political and cultural conditions at the time? Well, they were wandering around the desert for 40 years. Right? These are things to consider of every book you look at, right? What were the living conditions at a time? Well, I didn't have a home, wandering around in tents, right? Um, who was ruling and where, right? Who was ruling Israel at the time? Well, there was no king. Well, then how did it work, right? What was Moses doing? What were social pressures? Who was involved and to what degree, Okay, what were the tensions, problems, and crises of the community or of the country that it was in? What was the culture of the day? What were the customs of the people like? All this can have an impact on how you're looking at Scripture. Um, I think at First Peter 1.13 it says, in the King James, it says, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is that." is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the first part there says, wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Now, if you look that up in a different translation, they tried to translate it into different things, and different translations translate that phrase, the idiom, gird up the loins of your mind. They're taking a Greek idiom, and they're trying to turn it into English idiom. And so they come up with different ways to interpret it. But... um, the cultural context here makes sense because um, the people in Old Testament times in the Mediterranean world wore long tunics or robes. They went all the way down to their feet. So if they were doing hard work or if they tried running, well, you'd trip over your robe, right? So what they'd do is they'd take the bottom of the robe, they'd tie it up around their waist, so then they could do hard work and they wouldn't trip over the robe or they could run or they could fight. Right? It was preparing for action, preparing to do something vigorous. Okay? The New Unger's Bible Dictionary translate that phrase, gird up your loins, as vigorous effort. Okay, so now let's read this passage again, read the, read the verse again. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Okay? Or, or you, some people say, prepare your mind for action. That's a good translation. One of the translations says that. Um, really, it could be, Prepare your mind for vigorous effort. Looking at the cultural context here helps that passage make sense. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought to you unto the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay? Be ready with your mind. Be ready for vigorous effort with your mind. That's what it means. Right? So to answer cultural and historical questions, we can use Bible dictionaries, Bible handbooks, commentaries, history books, Pastor Walden, other, other Bible commentators, other pastors. You know, there's all kinds of um, resources that you can use to gain this historical knowledge of what's going on in the passage. Okay, the next principle is the practical principle. 2 Timothy 3.16, why don't we go there? 2 Timothy 
chapter 3, verse 16. Actually, we're going to read verse 16 and 17. Dan White, can you read that for us? You want to be thoroughly equipped for every good work? What do you need? All Scripture. Not part of it, not some of it, all of it. It is all inspired by God, and it is all profitable. Now, I looked up that word profitable, and I looked in the NAS, I looked in the NIV, I looked in the King James, New King James. You know what it's translated? profitable. I didn't find anything. Sometimes you do that. Sometimes I look, I want to find more about what's that word profitable mean. I didn't find much. Okay. But it's pretty obvious. Okay. We know what profitable is, right? If you run a business, you're in it for profit. If it's something is working out and you're making money, it's profitable. Here where it's using the term is more, it's also worthwhile, but it's for your benefit, right? All scripture is inspired by God and it's for you, which Paul said earlier. We heard that earlier. It's for your benefit. It's for your sake. It is profitable for you. All Scripture is profitable for you. And for what? What's the verse say? It's profitable for... There's four things. Number one, that's for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and... Training in righteousness. So that, there's one of those connecting phrases, right? So that the man of God may equipped, be, be equipped for every good work. Okay? So when you go through Scripture, the final question you ask yourself is, so what? What does this mean? What does this have to do with me? A good preacher will always do that anyway. At the end of the sermon, it's, So what does this have to do with me? How does this impact me right now? So one way to look at it is to look for these things. Okay, what is it teaching me? That's obvious. Taught, something you didn't know before. Knowledge, gaining understanding. What is it teaching me? Okay, the next thing is reproof. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for reproof. What is reproof? Well, it goes with the next thing. Correction. (laughs) Reproof is correction. Correction is reproof, right? Um, Oftentimes in lists and scriptures, you'll see this. A lot of times people want to separate each thing in a list. That's not necessarily the way they did it in Greek, and it's certainly not the way they did it in Hebrew. Um, as far as separating each thing in the list. A lot of times the things were going together. One thing is building on the other thing. They're not necessarily... Two separate things, okay? For reproof and correction, we could probably we could lump those two together, right? This is um, this is repentance. This is a new understanding. This is rejecting something that was old and doing something new. This is a change of mind, right? For teaching, for reproof and correction, and for training in righteousness. So one way you could another question you can ask yourself. Bible study or at the end of a sermon is, is how is this training me in righteousness? What's training? Like if you want to be a police officer, you go to an academy and you get trained, right? You want to be a pilot. You need to go to pilot school and you get trained how to fly a plane. Okay? Training. Teaching you how to do something, Right? So what is the passage of Scripture teaching me to do? What is it telling me to do? What is it training me for? Okay, How is my behavior going to change based on what we're listening to? Hopefully we never forget that. So those, But this verse is great. Um, all Scripture inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof and correction, and training in righteousness. Three things we should always think about whenever studying God's Word. Teaching, reproving, and training. Okay, hopefully that wasn't 
too much. That We covered that in three lessons last time. And I just went over it in just under an hour. <laughs> um, any questions? Pretty simple, pretty basic. So next week, I hopefully, I'm going to, I'll finish the review. There's a couple things we didn't get to. Um, and then we'll keep going again. But hopefully that was helpful and a reminder. It's been a long time. When I started looking at this and I was going through my notes, I had no idea where I left off. <laughs> I, couldn't, I couldn't remember, and I'm trying to look through emails and stuff and try to figure out where I left off, what I covered, and what I didn't. And, um, I think I got it, but um, two years is a long time. But I'm glad we're here again. I'm glad we have Sunday school again. It's good to be teaching. It's good to be here with you. Uh, it's a good. It's all good. Okay. Cliff. Sure. Yes. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Because it, it's telling you what you're learning, right? It's telling you what you're being taught, right? It's not just teaching is more, uh, more broad. Doctrine is a little more pointed, right? But that's, that's, that's a great point because looking it up in other translations gives you more insight into what it means by that word teaching. Because obviously in Greek it didn't say teaching. It was a Greek word. Well, what did it mean? <laughs> right? But yeah, exactly, Cliff. That's exactly what I do. If I look it up in different, and I see a lot of times if it's translated into a different English word in different translations, it just gives you more insight. It helps you understand more about it. The, the tricky thing is when you look it up in different translations, they all translate it the same thing. And then I kind of go, okay. Well, I could use a Bible dictionary and I could look up what, what the Greek word was for. And oftentimes you can just look up other places in Scripture the same Greek word was used. And you can gain insight that way. Um, but yeah, a lot of times you look it up and it's translated something completely different. And then you might have to go digging some more to trigger, try to figure out well, which translation seems to be more correct here. Wait, anything else? All right, let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for the time we can spend together. Uh, thank you for a day set aside to worship you, to learn about you. And thank you for this time of Sunday school where we can come together uh, and learn together and learn from you and learn from your word. May we never lose sight of the goal of studying your Bible to learn more and more each and every day. May we always learn from you. May we always be looking at how you're trying to teach us, how you're trying to reprove us, to correct us, and to train us in righteousness. And Lord, I pray the rest of this day uh, and the worship service later that our worship would be pleasing to you and that you would be pleased to teach us more about you at the same time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.